From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, a moment of silence before this episode begins. Well, good morning. It is a, uh, a gift and a grace for me to be with you this morning um, at Church on Morgan. This is like one of my favorite churches in the universe. And so um, to be here is a really special gift. So thanks for letting me be here. Um, I, uh, before I read our text for today, we're going to be Mark 13, verse 1 through 8. But uh, before I do that, it's been a crazy week. Um, we had um, an election, so that was, that was something. And uh, we got to vote for policies and politicians. And elections are like demarcation points, right? They're dividing lines between a season that is passing away and one that is approaching. They're reminders that one of the only things that we can count on in life is change. Of course, we don't need elections to remind us of that. Uh, It's been a time of great change for so many of us, which raises all sorts of questions, right? How do we live in times of great change? What does it mean for us to make home in the in-between and the liminal spaces and these yawning transitional phases? And I think it's a pretty good idea in in moments of great change to think about what has ended and what the implications of those endings are for us, what's been left behind, what's been lost, what has been let go of. And Jesus in Mark 13 has a little something to say about endings. So it's, it's I think, apropos and um, relevant to us. But before we do that, it's the practice in our church, the church that I come from in New York, just to center ourselves at the beginning. Particularly in weeks like this, I think that can be helpful. So if you're willing, maybe you could just lay your hands out, put your feet on the floor, and remind yourself that you are a creature of this good earth. And just um, center yourself on your breath and bring your full self to this space. If you bring a lot of faith or a lot of doubt, bring your full self. If you bring a lot of joy or a lot of sorrow today, bring your full self. And just remember that it is God's spirit that is the breath in our lungs And just sort of hold your full self in your awareness and your attention. Come Holy Spirit, cosmic breath within us. Speak to us today, for if your spirit is with us, then nothing else matters. And if your spirit is not with us, then nothing else matters. In the name of God, of new beginnings, amen. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, the 13th chapter, verses 1 through 8. 
As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all of these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? And Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he and will deceive many. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. A few years ago, I uh, invited my grandmother to come visit me in New York City. Um, At the time, she was 83 years old, and uh, so I figured we had a a narrow window. If she was going to come visit me, now was a pretty good time. Now, my grandmother, she lives a very simple life in the North Georgia mountains. She lives on a, a quiet country road, and all that she had known of New York City had come from her television set. So I felt like it was probably a good thing that grandma would come visit me where I live and see this place with her own eyes. In order to give my grandmother the full touristic experience, my mom had the bright idea to book a fancy room at the W Hotel in the center of Times Square. Now, if you've ever visited New York, maybe you stayed there or around there, and and, uh, for you, if you're like most tourists, Times Square is like stepping through the wardrobe into Narnia. (laughs) But for New Yorkers like me, Times Square is like Dante's seventh circle of hell. (laughs) We don't like it. We don't go there. It's so funny. People will be like, I love New York. I visited. I've been to Times Square. It would be like me going to Atlanta and, and staying at Six Flags. It's, it's not the city, but, uh, but we love it. We thank you for your money. We thank you for your tax revenue. So we're staying in Times Square, and uh, my grandmother comes to visit. I met her at the hotel, and you should have seen the circumference of my grandmother's eyes when she stepped out of that taxi, and she was instantly immersed in the pulsating, phosphorescent energy of Times Square. She stood right there in the middle of the road, (laughs) gazing and grinning, completely unaware of the fact that she had stopped traffic on 47th Street. But the childlike wonder of that moment. It was nothing compared to what happened when she opened the door to our hotel room high in the sky. Now, we had uh, stayed at the W Hotel. I had booked a room um, on the 42nd floor of the W Hotel. Now, what I did not know was that my grandmother, until that day, the highest she had ever been was 11 stories. So she opens the door to our hotel room on the 42nd floor, She takes a few steps in, she drops her suitcase, she walks straight over to the window, and then she just stood there, mouth agape, for at least a minute. I watched her eyes watch the world outside. I'm not sure she blinked. A sea of skyscrapers, 
sprawling screens of light, throngs of ant-like tourists bustling along the streets below. She was taking it all in and I didn't say a word. I just watched her absorb the majesty of New York City that we New Yorkers take for granted. Getting the chance to witness her wonder in that moment, for me at least, it was worth the whole trip. But can you imagine, can you imagine in the middle of that moment if I had walked up behind my grandmother and whispered in her ear, well, don't get too attached to this place, Grandma, because the way climate change is going, the whole thing will be underwater before you know it. (laughs) What kind of a person would do that? What kind of a person would just extinguish a loved one's joy in a magical moment like that. I would never be so rude, not to my own loved one and my grandmother for Pete's sake. But unfortunately for the disciples, Jesus was not always so tactful. In fact, Jesus could be kind of a buzzkill sometimes. (laughs) Today we're in Mark's 13th chapter. But if you rewind the tape to Mark's 12th, the evidence, it's all there. Jesus invites his disciples to join him on a little Passover vacation in the big city, the big city of Jerusalem, that is. But he makes them stay two miles outside of town in Bethany. Now, Bethany is the town where the poorest pilgrims would stay. It's a place where you could find discount lodging. Staying in Bethany is like when your parents took you to Disney World in Orlando, but then they made you stay in Kissimmee, like an hour outside of town in a motel on the side of the highway. Bethany is basically Newark, okay? It's like not the place that you want to go when you're on vacation. And on their first day of this vacation, Jesus decides he will enlist his disciples in a bit of a PR scheme. He has them borrow a colt from a stranger, and then he orchestrates this grand entrance through a crowd of his superfans who are literally singing his praises. Now, the text says that as soon as Jesus arrives and dismounts his colt, He checks his watch, he decides it's getting pretty late, he turns around and he drags the disciples all the way back to Bethany. On the second day, Jesus and the disciples finally make it to the temple, but before the disciples can even scope out the joint, Jesus is already ruining the party. Now, in Jesus' defense, he had good cause to be upset. At the temple, they're practicing what you might call for-profit faith. It's the kind of faith in which religion is commoditized. Jesus walks in and he sees this extraordinary system where preachers get rich and people get robbed. It's the kind of religious system that may ring oddly familiar to those of us who've been in the church in 21st century America. And seeing this enrages Jesus. It makes him so mad that he just makes a mess of the place. He's turning over tables and benches. He's yelling at people. And then he rounds up the kids right back to Bethany. So by the time we meet Jesus in Mark 13, well, this vacation has already been a bit of a bust, but here they are departing the temple. And one of Jesus's disciples stops to snap a picture He looks up at the building and he is overcome by its grandeur. And who could blame him? This was the most magnificent structure that this disciple would have ever laid eyes on. The temple was built by Herod the Great and its sheer size was staggering. The footprint of the temple was more than 35 acres, which means that the temple would have taken up, it would have covered some one-sixth of the whole city of Jerusalem. The bright, 
white stones that formed the walls of the temple, well, they were a spectacle unto themselves. A single block of stone in the temple wall would have been 46 feet long, 10 feet high, and 10 feet deep. They would have weighed 415 tons each, which means that they weighed more than the blocks in the great Egyptian pyramids. And if that's not enough, the walls were covered in sheets of glittering gold, plates of gold that nearly blinded visitors. The first century Jewish historian Josephus remarked that the gold on the temple walls reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those straining to look at it were forced to turn away. Keep in mind, too, that these disciples, they're not cosmopolitan city folks. They're not jet-setting one percenters. They're mostly blue-collar workers from out in the country. So as New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, the Galilean disciples were having a touristic experience. So it's no surprise, then, that one of Jesus' disciples walks out, gazes up at the temple, and can hardly process what his eyes are seeing Now, perhaps mercifully, Mark, in his version of the story, doesn't name the disciple. I tend to think that based on what happens next, Mark wants to save this poor guy the embarrassment of being known. He's standing there, awestruck, and this unnamed disciple taps his rabbi on the shoulder and says, Wow, will you look at this place? Isn't this magnificent? And Jesus says, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Talk about a buzzkill. Jesus just extinguishes the disciples' wonder right there where he stood. But buzzkill or not, Jesus is reminding them and us of a God-honest truth we need to hear whether we like it or not. Nothing lasts forever. Everything constructed by human hands is temporary. The houses in which we live, the offices in which we work, even sacred spaces in which we worship, rooms just like this, they're all fleeting no matter how much you love them. And if that's not bad news enough, the structures on the insides of these spaces that we're building, those structures, well, they'll eventually crumble too. The families we build, the careers we construct, the relationships we forge, temporary, all of them. Now, if you were a Buddhist, you might call this idea impermanence. But we Christians, well, we Christians, we just call this a fact of life. The grass withers, the flowers fade. And the stones of our lives, no matter how majestic or well-placed, they'll eventually fall. See, permanence is an illusion. And permanence can become for us a delusion. This is just part of the truth of what it means to be human. And it's one of the hardest truths that we humans have to learn, which is why so many of us work so hard, spending so much time in our lives pretending it's not the truth. We live our lives under this false assumption that the way things are today is the way things will be tomorrow. And if things begin to shift, if they begin to change against our wills, well, then we do everything we can to restore equilibrium, normalcy, order. 
Now, this way of living isn't a problem. Well, at least not until the world changes against your will, and then you don't know what to do with yourself. When the situations and structures of our lives crumble and fall, as they have for so many of us these last couple of years, well, then we find ourselves perfectly equipped to live in a world that no longer exists. Now, you would think that those of us who grew up in church would have received some tools that could help us to navigate these experiences, but I am sorry to tell you that most of modern religion has become so focused on building up that it has forgotten to prepare people for times of tearing down. So it does us good to regularly return to Jesus' words, to remind ourselves that everything is temporary, even the things we love with our whole heart. You know, the late Mary Oliver wrote a poem called In Blackwater Woods. It's an autumn reflection that I've come to cherish in times of passing away, and it's perfect for a season like this. The final stanza of Oliver's poem goes like this. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your whole life depends upon it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. People resist endings because endings involve change. And there's nothing we hate quite like change. After all, change means uncertainty. Change means loss of control. Change means having to learn new ways of living in the world, which is almost always uncomfortable. And sometimes it's even painful. But hating change will not delay it or deter it. The future is always breaking into the present, and it never calls ahead to ask permission. So we have to learn to love the worlds in which we live, to hold it against our bones, knowing our whole life depends on these worlds. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Now, after Jesus takes a pen to this unnamed disciple's balloon, The whole lot of them crosses the Kidron Valley, ascends the Mount of Olives, and then sits down, taking a seat facing back toward the temple. And that's when Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the first four of Jesus' disciples to quit their day jobs and follow him, they come to their teacher in private, as they often do, and they ask him to explain what he just said. Tell us, when will these things happen? And when will, the, when will be the sign that things are about to change? It's a funny question, but it's a familiar one. How often have you asked a question like this? For my part, I've lost count. We all want to know what tomorrow will bring. We all want to know the timetable. We all want to divine the signs of the future so that we can plan for it, so that we can prepare for it, so that we can pretend that we have some kind of control over it. Teacher, how will we know that the future is now the present, that it's here? You know, these days, there are plenty of future casters out there, aren't there, both secular and spiritual, and they will be happy to tell you what's coming your way. The palm reader behind the neon sign in downtown Manhattan, well, he'll charge you by the minute for an answer. And the end times preacher on your television set will offer you an answer too, in exchange for a tax-deductible donation, of course. Their games look different, but the goal is the same. 
So you want a clear timeline for the future of the world, Jesus asked? About that day or hour, no one knows. Now, if you had walked into another church this morning and not this one, well, then you might have heard a sermon about how Armageddon is just around the corner and you should probably start stockpiling cans for the apocalypse. The preacher would have pointed to all of the headlines, the chaos, the violence that's going on as rock-solid proof that we're nearing the end of the whole darn thing. These folks will often preach and pray in Jesus' name, which is why it's so hard to believe that they're just another huckster practicing what one scholar has called almanac discipleship. Watch out that no one deceives you, Jesus says, because people will come in my name and they'll deceive many. When you hear of wars or rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Isn't that such a buzzkill? Jesus' disciples ask him for a sign that the future is here, and Jesus responds with a whole list of things that are signs that the future is not yet here. Now, for Jesus' part, he does mention the end, but remember that everything that Jesus says here is in response to a question about the temple, which means Jesus is not talking about the end of the universe or the end of the cosmos or the end of human history. As one Methodist theologian has said, contrary to what you've been led to believe, when Jesus goes apocalyptic and talks of the end, he's not predicting the future. He's speaking about the precariousness of the present. Now, when Mark wrote his gospel some three decades or so after Jesus' crucifixion, well, the news reports then were as bleak as they are today. The economy had tanked. The oppressed Jewish people, well, they were rioting throughout the city. In AD 70, the Roman army entered Jerusalem to quell a Jewish uprising, and they burned the temple to the ground. When this happened, so history tells us, there was gold hidden in the temple treasury, and it melted from the, the heat of the fire, and it seeped down into the cracks beneath the stones. The greedy Romans had to pry the stones apart so that they could retrieve the melted gold. Not one stone here will be left on another, Jesus said. So Mark is telling this story to a Christian community in the midst of a state of social upheaval that was testing the limits of human resolve, which is to say Mark is telling this story to us. He's writing to Christians in a time much like our own, when the status quo is crumbling, which is such bad news for those of us who benefit from it and the best news possible for those who are crushed by it. But you know, God is not interested in sustaining the status quo or propping up obsolete institutions that do as much harm as good. Now, for first century Jews, like Jesus' disciples, the temple was more than just another building. It was a kind of tactile embodiment of the religious and political order on which they built their lives. So if we read Jesus' words in context, and particularly in light of Mark's last chapter, we hear him forecasting the end of an old order. Jesus is saying, it's not just that this building will be bulldozed. It's that the whole religious structure will be disqualified. And while this would have been an arresting thought to a first century Jew, Jesus just talks about it like it's another sordid fact of life. 
Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. Notice here that Jesus uses the future tense. He says, there will be. He's saying, these sorts of things happen and they're bound to keep happening. And it's tempting to confuse the chaos of history with the conclusion of history. It's easy to confuse the chaos of history with the conclusion of history. But chaos, change, endings, these things are, well, just part of the deal for those of us who live on planet Earth. As Markin scholar Ben Witherington says, Jesus' prophecy is primarily not about the end of the world. It's primarily about the end of a world. So if you happen to be one of those types of Christians whose entire faith is wrapped up in the apocalypse, then I'm sorry to say, today is not your day. But there's a message in our gospel text today for you too. Because the cold hard truth is, the world is always ending for someone somewhere. A declaration of war, a catastrophic natural disaster, a new and novel virus that alters the most basic contours of our ordinary lives, a miscarriage, a horrific diagnosis, a spouse who walks out on you for a final time, a rejection letter, a job loss, an eviction notice taped to your door. The end is always near. And Jesus says that the anxiety and the loss that you feel at the end of your world, it is not a reliable indicator that we're nearing the end of the world. But all this raises a big question for us, doesn't it? For those of us whose worlds are ending and have ended, the question is, what should we do? What should we do when the world that we've known slips away from us? What should we do when it leaves us against our will? What should we do when life feels like an epilogue to everything we've ever known and everything we've ever loved? Well, the answer, at least in part, according to Mark, is this. Keep your eyes peeled. Stay alert. Be aware and awake because Jesus is coming again. These are the beginning of the birth pangs, Jesus said, so keep watch and stay alert. There are so many things on planet Earth that I will never know, and giving birth is one of them. But the women in my life who have known the sacrament of childbirth tell me that it is painful, violent, messy, terrifying, even traumatic. This is true. Even today, in the age of modern medicine, it was especially true back in the day when Jesus was alive. It was especially risky business in the ancient world. Yet, in the Bible, we often encounter this metaphor of birth or birthing, and it's used to describe a process of pain that is bringing forth new life. Now, Jesus here uses a particular Greek verb, and he uses it numerous times throughout Mark 13. The verb is translated in English, to watch, and it's important for us to know what this means. 
The meaning of this word is not to be a passive spectator. It's rather a word that means to be actively on the lookout, always sort of scanning the horizon and watching for something. When your world falls apart, Jesus says, you don't need to worry. These events are not beyond God because God is working to bring forth new life. It's impossible to know how long this labor will last, but you can bet it will be a difficult delivery. So Jesus says, keep watch, because this pain you're feeling is a sign of the new life that may already, even now, be breaking into the world around you. So what does this mean, and how do we do this to keep watch for this coming Christ? Well, one way that Christians have done this historically They followed Jesus' advice by keeping watch and waiting for the literal second coming of Christ at the end of all time. Some of you went to churches that taught you to do this. Now, before you dismiss this as silly or superstitious, let me remind you there is a long history of Christians doing just this kind of watching, and it's not just end times junkies. This view has long sustained Christians who've been stuck living on the bottom rungs of of society's ladder, yearning with froth and fever for a final end to the injustice and the oppression that keeps pushing them down, down, down. It was the American slave, not the American master, who sang, My Lord, what a morning when the stars begin to fall. And yet, for many of us in the 21st century, Watching for Jesus to return at the end of all time is rather easy work, isn't it? It doesn't demand that we do anything differently at all. We don't have to live any differently than those who aren't watching and waiting for that event. So lucky for us, there is another way that Christians have followed Jesus' advice to keep watch. We can simply open our lives to the truth that just as the world is always ending... Christ is always coming again. We can begin to believe that there is a living God who transforms endings into beginnings and out of death calls forth new life. We can withdraw some of the energy that we've been investing in worrying and we can redeposit it into our efforts to watch and wait and be aware The stones that we have so carefully constructed will fall until not one is left on top of another. Hurricanes will wash away, markets will crash, health will dwindle, careers will end, nations will crumble. Yes, even the supposedly God-blessed ones. The ground beneath our feet is ever quaking, and I'm sorry to tell you that's not going to change. The world is always ending, but Christ is always coming again. And here's the secret. You'll miss the second part if you become too focused on the first. You know, three years, almost to the day before my grandmother stood in front of that hotel window, 42 stories above Times Square, she was standing over her husband as he passed from this life into the next. She'd been married to my grandfather for 63 years when he died. Can you even imagine that? For 63 years? And the moment he drew his last breath, their world ended. Their marriage ended. 
All of the memories that they were making, all of those ended. All of the plans for their future ended. But that's only part of the story, at least from my perspective. Because even in that moment when their world was ending, Christ was coming again. In the prayers that my grandfather prayed in his final days, Christ was coming again. In the smiles he offered and the ones he received, Christ was coming again. In the way my grandfather continued to share the good news that God loves every single one of us just the way we are until he was bedbound, Christ was coming again. Even in the heartbroken love he received from his wife of 63 years, as she held her beloved's hand and walked him all the way home, Christ was coming again. In moments of disintegration, it's easy to believe that God has nothing more to say to you, that God has taken a leave of absence. But today, you can be reminded that in the words of the ancient prophet, our God is the God of both darkness and light. You see, for God, the whole universe is a cosmic delivery room over which the great midwife is bending and ever whispering, push, push, push. And if you turn away or take a nap, well, you'll miss the grand reveal. So if you're facing the end of a relationship today, or if you're facing the end of your career, or if you're facing the end of a dream, or the end of your youth, or the end of a life of someone that you have loved with your whole heart, I hope that you will mourn with all you've got, but I also hope that you will receive the good news of today's gospel, that God is waiting everywhere for you, even in the places you'd rather not go. That God's Holy Spirit is hovering over the chaotic deep of your crumbling world, calling forth new life, even in this moment. And that Jesus is always coming again and again and again, even in this terrible, wonderful time. So stay alert. Keep watch. Because you might just find yourself with a broken heart, staring out a window with wonder in your eyes witnessing not just the marvels of human innovation, but a living God coming on the clouds of your ordinary life. Amen. Thank you for joining today. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.